Well, this morning we're going to continue here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And as I stand here to bring us the Word of God this morning, you may think that maybe there's something especially holy about me, that there's something that's set me apart to be standing here this morning. But I want to assure you, however, that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I struggle to keep my eyes on Jesus and wallow in self-doubt, desires of control and self-gain. With that, I would like this morning to share something I've recently repented to the Lord about, a sin that has sapped my joy, the sin of discontent. You see, my job at Collins Aerospace is as the leader of continuous improvement, which means I'm pretty good at focusing on making things better. I'm wired towards continuous or a never-ending pursuit of identifying problems and then working to find a solution to make it better. And although seeing an opportunity and wanting to improve is not inherently bad, it in my life has unfortunately been largely unchecked and unfocused on the Lord. It has driven me to be so focused on what's wrong and what can be improved that I forget to see and rejoice and celebrate the progress and success that the Lord is providing all around me. In all areas of my life, my marriage, my parenting, my job, my friendships, relationships with people in our church family, I easily and consistently see what could be better instead of seeing the joys around me that God has provided in abundance. As I prepared to bring this word of God to you this morning and repented of this discontent, I couldn't help but reflect on the goodness of the Lord in this body of believers we call Buffalo City Church. His goodness in his ability to bring this group of people together and challenge us to grow in spiritual maturity and love for one another. In less than three years, the Lord has brought a group of people who didn't know each other into what I would truly call a family of brothers and sisters in Christ. And although sometimes it gets messy and difficult, and there are times when we don't really like or understand or agree with each other. Ultimately, I see a unified, growing, faithful group of people longing to see growth in our understanding and application of the gospel. Gospel understanding and growth in our personal lives and in our homes and in our workplaces a desire to see the understanding and application of the gospel expand throughout the Jamestown community and the state. With that, I invite you this week then to join me in rejoicing and being thankful for what the Lord is doing in our midst at Buffalo City Church. Now, the text that we'll be jumping into this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 21. As we have navigated the first four chapters, 
four and a half chapters, I guess, of 1 Corinthians, we've seen an, an overarching theme of unity. Paul imploring the Corinthians to be unified by a foundation built on Christ Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. He has asked the Corinthians to turn away from disunity caused by dissenting opinions, which teacher to follow or which, which worldly wisdom to aspire to, by instead focusing on Jesus Christ. This morning, we will continue to see this theme of unity. Paul again asking the Corinthians to be unified in the power of Christ Jesus by seeing and seeking the humility of Christ Jesus. We will see in these set of verses that in our flesh and worldly perspective, we're drawn to what the world sees as power, intellect, wealth, respect from others, and comfort. We are called, however, to be unified in the power of Christ, to identify with Christ in humility. We will also see as a primary disciple maker for the Corinthians, Paul is asking them to follow him as he follows Jesus. At this time, let's go ahead and open our Bibles and let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 21. It says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ." We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things." I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? As we look to unpack these set of verses this morning, we're going to look at it in two sections, which are the two points of this morning's sermon. First, we're going to see a contrast between worldly power and Christ-like humility in verses 8 through 13. And secondly, a need for proper spiritual guidance or discipleship in verses 14 through 20. 
As we begin to look at this first point, the contrast between worldly power and humility, the first few verses may come across as a little harsh. Paul's assessment of the Corinthians here is pointed. Paul says almost sarcastically in verse 8, Already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, being the apostles, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you? And he goes on in verse 10 to say, We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Paul here is pointing out the contrast between worldly power exhibited by the Corinthians, derived from their sin nature, and the humility of the apostles and Christ Jesus. You may ask yourself, geez, Paul, do you have to so boldly call out this contrast? Already you have all that you want. You have become rich. Even further, you've become kings. You see, Paul is calling out the sin in the heart of the Corinthians. And as we reflect on sin, we inherently see and understand that this is the first element of the gospel message. The gospel message starts first and foremost with the idea that we are sinners in need of a savior. If we're already good, if we, have all, if we already have all that we need, if we're already rich and in fact kings, we have nothing to be rescued from. We have no need for a savior. The Apostle Paul is pointing out to the church in Corinth the sinful desires and prideful position that result in worldly gains of wealth, intellect, honor, and comfort, and explaining that they are not aligned with what is received in following Jesus Christ. The gain in following Christ is eternal life and enjoying the Lord forever. But it will not come with worldly gain and appreciation. Paul is saying, do not follow me because I have worldly desires and achievements and comforts. Follow me because I am exhibiting the humility of Christ by not having worldly desires and achievements And comforts. In fact, we're reminded that Paul gave up everything in pursuit of the gospel. As Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 8, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he describes his worldly position now in verses 10 through 12. In the world's eyes, Paul is a fool. As we see in verse 10, he's weak, held in low esteem or disrepute. He hungers and thirsts. He's poorly dressed. He's violently battered or buffeted. He's homeless. He labors. The apostles are persecuted, slandered, scum of the world, the refuse of all things. But in this, we see the likeness of Christ Jesus, who humbly took the burden of our sin and endured public shame, beating, mocking in a crown of thorns, death on a cross that was so undeserved. Christ's response, although seated on the throne, was to take the death that we deserved so that we could be saved from sin and the wrath of God. And Paul explains, despite this persecution, despite this humble circumstance, his response His response, as we see in verses 12 and 13, is to bless, to endure, to beg, or entreat. As we see over and over in Scripture, the marginalized, the mocked and scorned, the judged ones of the world are humbled or humble themselves like Christ Jesus and therefore inhabit the kingdom of God. In Luke 7, we see Jesus' forgiveness of the sinful woman. Jesus is having dinner with with a Pharisee, right? Someone who is, is good at keeping the law. And a woman of the city and a known sinner comes in to their their existence, right? They're having dinner and and this woman comes in and she falls at the feet of Jesus and she breaks the jar of expensive perfume and begins to rub his feet with her tears and this expensive perfume and her hair. She humbles herself at the feet of Jesus and what is Jesus' response to the Pharisee who says, who is this woman? Who is this known sinner to be here in our presence? Jesus' response isn't to honor the Pharisee, the one who's keeping the law, who has pride enough to, to continue to proceed. No, he praises the woman who has fallen at his feet. He says, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. As Mark mentioned this morning, if we aren't able and willing to forgive, the Father is unwilling and unable to forgive us. We also see in Mark 12 verses 41 through 44, the widow's offering. 
says Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Paul is saying here, that there are those of the world trying to tell us that the focus is in our intellect or our honor or our comfort, something other than Jesus Christ. But Paul is here to point the Corinthians in word and in deed to the humility of our Savior in Christ Jesus. The result for the Corinthians of this focus on intellect and honor and comfort, the outworking of this sinful nature became strife, disunity, a lack of harmony. On these things rested a house divided. How much of the strife and disunity in our lives in our homes, in our extended family, our friendships, our relationships at work are because of worldly pursuits. Think of conflicts in your life and they are always rooted in temporary, non-eternal things. Disagreements over money, power struggles over an idea or a principle that in the scope of attorney doesn't really matter. Misaligned priorities around things or activities. I know it sounds a little like a Sunday school answer, to put it this way, but how do we avoid conflict and disunity? We turn to Christ Jesus. I think Caleb said it well during one of our family meetings a few weeks ago that if anyone had unfortunately been a part of a a church split or church division, the issue is inherently that the focus somehow, some way, has come away from Jesus and working together to glorify God. The focus strays away or strays towards an intellectual principle or a building, or finances, or pride in a particular stance that points away from the gospel. And that's what Paul here is is driving home. It doesn't matter who is following Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, It doesn't matter who has money and who doesn't. It doesn't matter who is perceived as having worldly wisdom or not, or is seen as honorable by others. The only thing that matters is focusing on Christ Jesus and what he has done in humbling himself on our behalf. As it says in Ephesians 4, 
verses 11 through 13. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people, his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Are we pursuing Christ and in turn being humbled, as Paul described for himself and the apostles? Or are we pursuing something else? Are we fools for Christ's sake, as it says in verse 10? Do we labor and bless when reviled, endure when persecuted, and beg when slandered? For that, we must continually turn to and surrender to Jesus Christ. This brings us to the second point in this passage, the Corinthians' need for proper spiritual guidance or discipleship. It says in verses 14 through 16, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Paul explains and is pointing, and that his pointing out of their sin is not meant to shame or discourage but instead is meant to admonish or firmly warn his beloved children. Folks, as we see in this case, love is not what the world has tried to convince us it is. Love is not a feeling or just being the sounding board that always agrees. No, love is the truth of the gospel, even when it's difficult to hear. It may sound countercultural, but Paul, out of love, is telling the Corinthians that they are acting in sin and pursuing temporary things. He is correcting them, as he says in verse 15, like a loving father corrects and disciplines his children. Paul reminds the Corinthians that although they have many guides, he is a spiritual father in Christ Jesus and urges them to follow him, to be imitators of him and his humility. This is discipleship and the crux of the Christian life. In the book Discipling by Mark Dever, he says, to be a Christian means to be a disciple. There are no Christians who are not disciples. And to be a disciple of Jesus means to follow Jesus. There are no disciples of Jesus who are not following Jesus. Ticking a box on a public opinion poll or sincerely labeling yourself with the religion of your parents or having a preference for Christianity as opposed to other religions, none of those things make you a Christian. Christians are people who have real faith 
in Christ and who show it by resting their hopes, fears, and lives entirely upon him. You are not your own, Paul says. You were bought with a price in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20. Jesus is not just our Savior. He is our Lord. He continues, Mark Dever, to say that the Christian life is not only being a disciple of Jesus, but also being a discipler of Jesus. Disciples disciple. And his definition of discipleship helps us understand that. He defines discipleship as doing deliberate spiritual good to help someone follow Christ. Doing deliberate spiritual good to help someone follow Christ. We follow the one who call people to follow, which is Jesus, by calling people to follow Jesus. Why do we do this? For the sake of love and obedience. In other words, we ask others to follow us as we follow Christ, as the Apostle Paul does in this passage. And in fact, we see this further as Paul continues in his drive and explanation of discipleship to the next level in sending Timothy. In verse 17, he says, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. The Apostle Paul is showing that he is making disciples, like Timothy, who is making disciples, the church in Corinth. But you may ask yourself, if the Corinthians were following Paul, why would he need to send Timothy? And I think the answer lies in that we need people immediately around us to remind us of who we are in Christ Jesus. One of the reasons that Paul states in verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, is that we easily dismiss and forget what is not right there in front of us. Our sinful nature and narrowed perspective only allows us to focus on the here and now. Right? Remembering the message that Paul brought weeks or months before may be difficult for the Corinthians to gather or to recall. Right? The discipled life is a connected life. We don't admonish people from afar. Well, maybe sometimes we do. But if we are truly being disciples who are being disciples, we are admonishing people from near being in the trenches with them and helping them deal with and overcome our sinful tendencies and helping people right next to them turn to the Lord. This requires a level of dependence upon each other. And I'll be the first to admit this dependence on others to help build our faith and trust 
is difficult. In most areas of our lives, we don't need help. We don't need someone else. We're strong, independent, self-serving Americans. If you don't know the answer or you need help, you just Google it. But in our faith, where our identity resides, this is just not possible or true. We can't just pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and be better ourselves. We need each other. We are dependent on each other to see the truth of the gospel and to be reminded of where our focus should reside in the truth of the gospel. If we aren't regularly connecting and meeting together to share the truth of the gospel, truly connecting with each other to know God and to love God, it will be difficult to fulfill our calling to love others and make God known to others. Our calling as Christians requires not an optional endeavor, community and connection with each other. It requires being a disciple and being a discipler. In our flesh and worldly perspective, we're drawn to what the world sees as power, intellect, wealth, respect from others, and comfort. Paul implores the Corinthians to be unified in the power of Christ and therefore to identify with Christ in humility. And as a primary disciple maker for the Corinthians, he asks them to follow him as he follows Jesus. In conclusion, I think this text is asking of us two things. One, to repent or turn away from the things that are keeping us from knowing and experiencing God on a more regular basis. Maybe like me, you're struggling with discontent. You're failing to see God's goodness and what he is truly doing in your midst. Maybe as Paul mentioned in these set of verses, you're focused on, you're finding your joy or your identity in worldly wealth or the pursuit of intellect or honor from those around you or comfort in what you have. Repent and turn away from those desires to acknowledge, recognize, and live a life that says and shows that being a disciple, following Jesus, is better. You see, the enemy tries to minimize our understanding of the spiritual realm. The enemy tries to tell us that everything can be fixed with some type of physical solution, a new gadget, a better way of allocating our time. But when we spend time with the Lord in the Word... He reveals to us that much of our physical difficulty and strife resides in a low view of God. The problem isn't our physical situation. The problem is our heart position in relation to God.
If we are anxious, are we truly believing the sovereignty of God, that he is in complete control and that his plans for our eternal life with him is good? If we are angry or hurt by someone, are we finding our worth in someone else's thoughts or opinions above our identity as beloved children of God? You see, repentance takes humility. Acknowledging that we are sinful and have gone astray and that our lives need a course correction. It requires asking God to provide this correction in our hearts and minds so that our thoughts and actions properly follow. Folks, we know how the story of the world goes. It gets harder and worse until Jesus returns. The world is crumbling. People around us are filling their hurt and their pain and their need for God with different things that ultimately will not satisfy. Thankfully, we, the church, can rejoice in Christ's return and be reminded that no matter the condition of the world around us, we are called to know God, to love God, to love others, and make God known. But to do that, we must continually and consistently repent of our sinful tendencies and turn to the power of Christ Jesus to lift our eyes to him. Secondly, I think this text is calling us to find and or be spiritual parents. As Paul says in verses 15 and 16, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. We have a host of people here this morning who are in different places in their spiritual walk. Different levels of maturity, different levels of experience and time they've spent with the Lord. Maybe you're someone who's been diligently and obediently reading and studying your Bible for years. You're intentional about setting aside time, praying and digesting God's word. I'm here to tell you that there are people in this room that need and want you to come alongside them to spend time with them in prayer and God's word, to give a little boost, as Mark, Dev- Mark Dever's definition of discipleship provided, to do deliberate spiritual good to help them follow Christ. Maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum. Maybe you're new to your faith. Or maybe you really haven't made spending time with the Lord a priority but know that it should be. Maybe you've never really realized or been convicted that if you truly are a follower and a disciple of Jesus, you must know him by consistently being in his word and in prayer with him. There are people in this room that need and want to come alongside you, to spend time with you in prayer and in God's word, to give you a little boost and attempt to do 
deliberate spiritual good to help you follow Jesus. And as we talk about those discipleship relationships, the joy is that it's never a one-way street. It's a mutually beneficial, Christ-focused pursuit. Anyone who has consistently been involved in an intentional discipleship relationship easily finds that each person, no matter how young or old, how mature or new in your faith, benefits greatly. Just like when we act in service, right, we are edified, right, that that we are lifted up. The same is said in a discipleship relationship. Whether you're the discipler or the disciple, the growth and the benefit is mutual. Folks, the bottom line is that if we say our mission at Buffalo City Church is to make disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ, we have to do it. As Paul implored the Corinthians to imitate him as he imitates Christ, please ask yourself, who are you taking spiritual responsibility for? If you are a spouse, you have been given spiritual responsibility, particularly men, to disciple or do spiritual good to help your wife follow Christ. If you are a parent, you have been given spiritual responsibility to model and show your children how to be a disciple of Jesus. If you're a member of a community group, you have been given spiritual responsibility to connect with and spend intentional time in the word with someone around you. If the local church is the method in which Jesus Christ has chosen to spread and grow the good news of the gospel, we must do it together, constantly reminding each other to lift our eyes to the Lord, to see the power in Christ, which seems like weakness to the world, and spur each other to faith and good works. In our flesh and worldly perspective, we are drawn to what the world sees as power, intellect, wealth, respect from others, and comfort. We are called to be unified in the power of Christ and therefore to identify with Christ in humility and disciples, and as disciples of Jesus to make disciples of Jesus. May we be a people who continually and consistently gather to be in united adoration of the Father, and do deliberate spiritual good to help each other follow Christ. Let us pray.